I think everybody should spend as much time on their mental health as they do on their physical health, assuming that everybody we know goes to the gym and works out. <laughs> but we do that, thinking that'll make us stronger. It'll make us partly stronger, but it won't complete our strength. You can't complete your strength without your mental side. And the real strength becomes in the mental side. It's easy to train a physical body. That's Roger Schmidt, a five-time Olympic coach for the sport of curling. I'm your host, Lisa Kristen, and this is Level Up Your Leadership. Every other week or so, I interview one exceptional leader like Roger to unpack how they created their success and to discover their recommended tools, tips, and strategies that inspire listeners like you to take your leadership to the next level. Roger Schmidt is the most experienced international curling coach and trainer in the world. And he himself has competed as an athlete in world, European, and Canadian championships, achieving gold and silver status in each of those. In the past two decades, he has performed as a national coach for six different nations and has been engaged in almost every world and European championship as a coach. In today's episode, I spoke with Roger about how important the mental aspect of performance really is for reaching success, no matter if it's in sports or work or life in general. And Roger has created this really great and unique program called the Five Elements. And he uses this mental training program with his Olympic athletes and with these uh, teams to help them develop mental toughness and clarity and to help them win all of those medals. I'm also really excited to share that after this podcast, Roger and I had so much fun and had so many interesting conversations that we ultimately decided to partner together to create a really interesting and sort of unique high-performing teams leadership development training program. So if you're interested, this is mostly for leadership and executive teams, and it's this really cool concept because participants would actually get to get out on the ice and try out curling, and Roger would be there as their coach. And then beyond the physical of the playing, of course, we're going to combine that with learning the mental strength exercises that Roger has that he uses with his Olympic athletes, and then also the best practices that I use with executive and leadership teams for team cohesion and team development to make sure that you're the highest performing team that you can possibly be. And uh, the program can be customized, so it would meet your team's individual needs depending where your team is at. Do you need to develop your strategies for leveraging conflict, dealing with conflict, or uh, learning how to use more effective communication styles? So if you're interested, I would love to hear from you. Reach out to me. You can email me, lisa at lisakristen.com. The last name is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N. So lisa at lisakristen.com. And we'd love to chat if you're interested in hopping on the ice with Roger. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Roger Schmidt. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. I'm here today with Roger Schmidt. Hi Roger. Hello, nice to be here. (laughs) And I want to start this with uh, an anecdote, and you don't even know what I'm about to say, Roger. I guess I'll find out. Yeah. Well, I wanted to let you know that you have changed my life. 
And I'm I want- hoping for the better. <laughs> for the better, for yeah. the better, for the better. So to give background to people listening, you and I met last week to talk about the podcast. We were go- running through some ideas about what you wanted to talk about here today. And it just so happened you sent me the right message at the right time. So a side note for my personal sort of journey, I've been, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm too young to go through a midlife crisis, right? <laughs> Uh, well, there might be more than mid. You can have a pre-mid, yeah. post-mid. I like that. I like that. I'm a, I'm a pre-mid, post-quarter yeah. life crisis. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking lately, I have everything that I want. I'm very lucky, very grateful for everything I have. And it still felt like for my life, I don't know, something's missing. Something's still not right. I, st- I felt like mm, I'm just still trying too hard at life. Somehow it's not flowing for me. And I thought, hmm, how, how can that be? I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm supposed to be able to coach myself out of all of this stuff. And you and I were chatting. And something that you said was when you were telling a story about a woman that you were coaching and she was too much in her head. And you said, if I remember the words correctly, just shut up and shoot. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. Yeah. So who did you shoot? <laughs> well, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, okay. figuratively. Mm-hmm. No, but... Uh, It really was the exact right words that I needed to hear because I couldn't quite define what I was looking for, what was missing, what was wrong. Nothing was missing per se. And I won't keep talking about me for the whole podcast, but I want you to know already how effective you are as a coach. And so I started thinking about, uh, that's it. You've just put words to what I've been feeling. I'm living way too much in my head. I'm thinking way too hard and I'm trying way too hard. And, you know, you discussed being able to feel stuff in the body, like, oh, this isn't just the thing that transports my working brain around. There's actually a whole body there. And it really struck home for me. So I wanted to say already, before we even get started on this podcast, you've already affected at least one person. Oh, that's great. I feel yeah. like I can go now and be yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah, leave on a high note. Done. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, where to even get started after such a tremendous sort of introduction for you? Maybe we start with the beginning. I don't know. You grew up, I think your definition is middle of nowhere. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what everybody who doesn't live there calls it. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So it's but just when the you object. grow up there, I mean, it's home and, uh, and, uh, and you appreciate it and you, and you learn how to make the best of all kinds of things. Yeah, and where was home? It was in Saskatchewan in the Midwest, Canada. Hmm. I'm, I'm just curious, population? Oh, the, the village I grew up in had uh, less than 100 people. Oh. <laughs> which was good and bad. Yeah. It was easy to get on the sports teams <laughs> and uh, easy to be, you know, be successful in your little world. And also very secure, which I think helps a lot because uh, in a town that size, I mean, I don't think there are many communities like that in the world today. It's changed so much. But I mean, you walk into anybody's house as if it's your own house. And so it's, it, those people are very connected, like a, it's like a big family. So you always had people to play with. You always had people to bounce ideas off and be stupid with. Yeah. So I, you grow up quite secure, I think. And, you know, I appreciate that very much. That, that sounds like uh, the definition of it takes a village. Because you literally (laughs) had a village. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's right. And so in Saskatchewan, I guess there wasn't so much to do, especially during the winters. Well, yeah, in the winter. I mean, sports, sports summer, sports winter, sports, 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 sports. (laughs) That's about what we did outside of farming and working and, and, uh, you know, having to survive and, and keep food on the table, basically. Yeah. Uh, Your only, your only joy was to play sports when you weren't working. So the only two things I knew, work and, and go play sports. And what, what sports were your favorite when you were a kid? 
Uh, baseball. If I'd have been born on the other side of the 49th parallel at the time I was born, I think I would have made Major League Baseball. Wow. But at that time, they never, uh, well, that's my my interpretation of it. <laughs> I, I won't but change But at that time, they didn't really scout people because there were so many people in the United States and there were no teams there at that time. So, so that was my number one sport. But then you have to play everything. And in the winter, I mean, you, you, you got right into where we're going here because... Uh, in the winter, there was hockey and there was curling. And curling in Canada was already a well-accepted sport at that time. So when my hockey career ended at about 15, 16, then you just keep on curling. And I had success in that. And luckily enough, that got me, you know, I, I did all the right education as far as, you know, if, if you play sports all the time, you go into physical education, kinesiology, and then teaching sports and becoming a coach and becoming a, a teacher, uh, which I did. So I got the university diplomas to, to have the credibility. But the real thing that got me coaching was, uh, you know, I had a career of playing, which was uh, quite successful. Could have been better, <laughs> but quite successful. I'll go through that bio part now quickly so you don't have to ask me about this later. <laughs> Um, you know, I played in uh, in world finals and uh, lost the world final to Canada. I was actually playing for Germany at that time. Can uh, I say you came in second yeah. instead of lost? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good coaching point. Right? But I was a player then, and yeah, we just lost the final. We won the semifinal. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, you there take you go. That, yeah. Winners, big winners. And won the European Championship and had good success in tournaments on the thing. And from the playing career, I got into coaching because it was, I wanted to really, there wasn't, it wasn't a profession when I started because it's so long ago that I coached. Now it is. And there's lots of really top level coaches around, but that's in the last decade. And I've been coaching for about three decades. And it was kind of in the, initially to, to teach the sport, to make the sport grow more than thinking you're ever going to make a career of it. And uh, so it's kind of uh, just a bit of blind luck. I'll use that word, uh, that, you know, that the sport grows and you grow into it, you know. And I would really love to hear more about curling because I think a lot of people either don't know what curling is or uh, there are a lot of funny videos on the internet of people, you know, pretending to do curling with a Roomba and a, and a mop or something. I don't know. Do people know what curling is? Do a lot of Are a lot of people familiar with it? I think a lot of people are now because it's been such a successful Olympic sport. It draws the highest ratings except for like the final of hockey or the final of figure skating, but throughout the whole, because it's on every day, every hour of every day through the entire Olympics. Because we start in the Olympics, we start on the like the first day and it finishes uh, the second last day of the final. So it just goes on forever. So it's bombarded on television and people get hooked on it because of the strategy. Once you get over the novelty and once you get over your own sense of self of saying this is stupid and you start watching, wait a minute, it's not so stupid. They're doing this and they have a task and they're, they have to get this here. Well, suddenly it all changes. And there's also a benefit that is in very few other sports is the players are microphoned. So everything they do is broadcast. So the people watching are listening to the athletes speaking to each other about the strategy yelling and screaming about various things, and you you get absorbed into the sport. And that has been the, the Olympics has been the greatest thing for our sport in that sense of exposure. Yeah, I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall in all of these different kinds of high pressure situations or conversations. And it's really fun with curling to get to be able to hear that. You know, I don't always know what they're saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but you do feel more of a more like you're part of the team, more a part of the excitement and the interaction when you're there sort of with them playing. Correct. And, and you know, the strategy of the game is complicated, but the basic rules are simple. So almost any idiot can figure it out pretty quickly. 
And then you start to grow more strictly. Like every sport has its little uh, interesting intricacies and things. And as you go along, you learn more of them and you start to feel quite competent yourself. Until that magic moment when you actually go on the ice and try it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's almost impossible the first time to not fall down and embarrass yourself brutally. And that sounds like a fun party to have. Or, or if you want to invite your friend or your enemy over and have <laughs> them over for, for some curling sessions. That's but I, I know you actually do some leadership trainings or you've done some leadership trainings or brought people who have never played before onto the ice. How does uh, that go? Yeah. Well, it goes well if you have no injuries. You don't want the ambulance coming up to the building. But I, yeah, that's more of a sort of a taking the coaching to a corporate side and having executives, business people, small groups and then curling really is just sort of the vehicle. It's sort of the, the task, the thing we do to learn the mental skills that go along with trying to perform better, which you and I are both supposed to be able to do, right? Yeah. It's really interesting that you're talking about high-performance athletes, of course. You're talking about coaching folks at the Olympics. You're talking about high-performance executives or people in corporations. And the mental strength the lessons there are similar. And you actually have a coaching program that talks about, you know, you have a mental edge program that talks about probably the same for both sides. Yeah, that's always fascinating because you don't need to have so much curling knowledge to be able to, to use it in a corporation. That's just as an analogy, as, a, as an example. And that, that's what we do. But the feelings and the thinking process that goes through trying to do something that you really have to get done and you have to get done right and at the right time is the same for what my athletes go through and what, what the corporate executives go through. Yeah, and, and I think the pressure. The I think pressure, that's yeah. really the key element. So many people who are you know in corporations today, it's stress. It's nonstop stress. It's nonstop bombardment. There are new tasks coming in, new priorities, something new. You know, whatever knowledge you had from five years ago is gone, and there's a mm -hmm. new. There's so much uncertainty for everybody that's sort of going on, and how to handle doing the right thing. You know, of course, everyone says, "I want to make the right decision." You know, how do we do that? Uh, we don't know. It's uncertain. Well, I know. <laughs> I mean, I just, I had to say that. I've made 25 years of coaching success on one simple statement of, look, all we need to do is the right thing at the right time. Oh, done. Problem solved. I'm going home for the day. That, that's it. Yeah. And everybody has to do that. And finding the right time, knowing when the time is to show up for work, knowing what needs to be done at this time is so key in every walk of life, definitely in our sport. And uh, doing the right thing, learning what the right thing, and having the ability to do the right thing. You can know, oh, that's the right thing, but ooh, I better find somebody who can do that. And uh, that's really sort of the basis of the mental program is figuring out then, how. okay, how do we actually do the right thing at the right time? Yeah. Are and what gets in the way? And, and that's key. I would love to hear more about the mental program and some practical tips. Like how can people who are listening even start to put some of this to work in their lives? Uh, I have to go back a little bit then because... I've been coaching so long that there wasn't much of a mental program when I started. There were people doing it, but it wasn't very evident. Most coaches in all sports, be it hockey, baseball, other sports, uh, were reluctant to bring in sports psychologists because they thought, well, it's my job to motivate the team. It's my job to do this. And if I'm not doing my job, don't want somebody coming and telling me how to do my job. There was a real resistance for a long time in, in the sporting world. So consequently... 25 years ago, I realized that I can train my athletes and we can get good at skills. And we, without skills, you're not going to succeed. But then when we got to a competition, what 
dictates whose skill is going to win today against another team who has worked just as hard as we have and trained just as hard as we have and has a couple of real great players. But we have to win today. We don't have to win tomorrow. We don't have to win yesterday. We have to win today, you know, getting in the, into that moment. And it became mental. Everybody realized, I think, for a long time that, you know, under pressure, you have to perform better, blah, blah, blah. But nobody really at that time worked on it so detailed, sort of like toughen up. You know, give your head a shake. Those were the, you know, the, the keys to sports psychology in those days. Helpful. <laughs> yeah. Just, just whack them one, right? <laughs> so I started to develop my own program as I went along with some assistance because in the, in the Salt Lake City Olympics, in the preparation to that, I met a guy who was still my mentor, uh, Dr. Saul Miller from uh, North Vancouver in Canada. And we worked together in the preliminary to the 2002 uh, Olympics. And we've remained friends since and we still communicate on a regular basis. And he's done some fantastic work and his books and workshops. Actually, to plug him on this, he just put all his stuff because he's even even older than I am, not so much, but onto uh, YouTube for free. And it's brilliant. Go Dr. Saul Miller and you'll find him. And his stuff is really good. I'll put the link in the show yeah, notes. That would be cool. Anyway, working with him uh, motivated me to go deeper into it and working with that. So that kind of got me started. But then I, you know, I'm going to get back to your original question, which I can't remember, but I'll get there. You need to have some structure, you know, just saying, okay, toughen up out there. <laughs> you can't do that, but you can do that if you get on a process, if you get on a program. So I said, look, I'm going to make a program. I don't care if it's the best program, and it won't be the best program. <laughs> There's people way, way have been doing this longer than I have. And, and you check sources, of course, right? And you steal stuff from other people. But I just, I just said, we have to have a program. If it's not the best program, isn't the thing. The thing is that we have one. So we start to trust ourselves and we start to, to trust a program. We have a place to go back to when we think we need help. So you need to, I think, every, you need to be running a mental program with working with athletes or in your life or in your business, you need to be running a program. And I love everything that you're saying. My mind is swirling. I have so many you know, burning questions I want to ask you. But what I want to say here is, how did you start to recognize that it's mental? Was there any particular incident or anything where you said there needs to be a shift? Because of course, what you also described is there's a lot of information about what to do. How is the question? How do I do that? How do I get tough? And a program, it sounds like maybe what you're, maybe, maybe not what you're saying is that's how you do it. Here are the steps. Here's the way. Here's the process that's going to get you from where you are to where you want to be. As an athlete, I was pretty strong mentally, except in golf. But <laughs> in other sports, I was always pretty strong mentally. Like, like, and I realized that it, it came from confidence. I had a big ego. Uh, sometimes I did things that, you know, I'm not proud of today when you're competing. I, not as bad as it sounds because I was sportsman in most cases, but you know, as far as working with your colleagues and stuff and pushing and pushing. So I was pretty strong, but I realized that I could have been way better as an athlete if I'd had the mental help. Once I started talking to people like uh, Dr. Saul Miller, when my career was at the end, I'm saying, why didn't I have this before? And then I really worked harder to try to get that to my athletes because I knew that was a missing piece. If, if I don't do it, it won't get done and they will not achieve as much. So then, you know, about a program, you just start it, <laughs> just start one. And so I had uh, written a couple of books on technical and I did the five elements of technical curling uh, in conjunction with the U.S. curling, which is a successful manual. It was really good and I'm proud of it. 
So I said, okay, I'll make five elements of mental, just because I had already done the five elements of this. I thought, okay, we'll do a series. And we actually talked about doing a series, five elements of strategy, five elements for the US, but fundings change and people change and we never got to the rest of it. So I, but I did. <laughs> so I did the five elements of technical and I just had to find five things that I thought could be elements. So you probably want me to run them down for you. I would love to know. <laughs> That's my next question. And I stole this, okay? Because really it's referenced from uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a mental uh, guru, Vietnamese. So thanks. Thanks, Thich. <laughs> But I, but you know, his wasn't intended for curling, and it wasn't intended for sport. It was intended for life. But I said, hey, these things for me, I can figure out how to how to apply these to curling, because we need to believe is element number one. We need to believe in ourselves. Okay, we need to believe that we can accomplish what we want to do. We need to believe we find the right thing at the right time, and then to believe number two is diligence. If you don't do the work, what are you going to believe in? You're not going to have the skills. So your skill level has to increase immensely your success increases and you believe more. So those first two elements are the ones that, I, that I've worked on the most. And if in my most recent work with the Russian crown team, we spent a season and a half basically just working on those two things. Of course, a lot of things come around it and, and reference to it and tie to it and connect to it. But for two almost two seasons, we, we really just worked those two. And did you see a change or an impact? Yeah, it took some time. Yeah, on the believing side. We spent, I think, about a season, and we were. And look, I have to tell you that this was a was a really good team when I started with them, and I had worked with them off and on because of my curling academy, and they'd come to train sometimes. But then I I started working with the Russians. I think maybe f six years ago, we kept working on believing and diligence, and the other the others as well. I mean, M one hundred, which is what everybody calls mindfulness, but I can't get the word mindfulness out of my my mouth freely because it's been so overused. So I actually changed that to M101, mind 100% on the one thing. Uh, there's element three. And then element element four is focus and concentration. And the three and four connect together. And element five is insight. Insight is you need to know what's going to happen before it happens. And top athletes, really good athletes, they have a sense. Uh, why was Wayne Gretzky always where the puck was coming? Why was he there before the puck? It's insight. You know where it's going to be. You you go there and then it shows up, right? So insight in every sport comes with exceptional athletes have it, I think, because of their training, because of everything goes with the diligence and their confidence and believing. And it's almost like a, a an extra sense for the really good athletes. They They just are in the right place at the right time. So you can do the right thing at the right time. Back to believing. So because you start by believing and you have to start believing to get better and to do the diligence. And ultimately, you get to element five, which is insight. It all works together and you'll have success. You'll have won some world championships. You'll have won some medals. <laughs> and that feels pretty good for an athlete that dedicates a lot of time and effort. My story now. Um, I had noticed that that the my Russian women's team, which was a very good team and had success, had already won medals and things. I noticed when I looked at the statistics going back that they never came back in games. Basically, if they were three or four points down or with, say, maybe five, even five ends to game, they never came back and won. So when I pointed out this to them, they denied, 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 which is, which is a normal reaction for a top athlete. No, not me, coach. Yeah, never <laughs> yeah. me. No, yeah. no, someone oh, else, yeah. that guy over there. But the statistician dug through the, through the records and proved me correct. And I just kept saying, if you really believe, then you don't stop believing because you're two points down. If you really believe, 
no matter who you're playing, you have to believe you can come back. You have to believe that you can finish, that you can go the distance, that you can find ways to win games. And if you went through the records of most championship teams, teams that win consistent championships, they win a lot of games they never should have won. Like they're three, four points down and they should be out of it. The other team should put them away, but they won't be, they won't be put away. And we were trying to, we were a good team, but we wanted to become a great team. So everything we were doing said, look, great teams do this. Good teams, we, we know how to do that, but we need to do the things that great teams do. And one has to be, you have to believe you can come back and win games. But we hadn't up until that point. <laughs> then we were playing a gold medal game against Canada. It was in a cool place too. It was in Spain, of all places. I think Granada, I can't remember. <laughs> was nice <laughs> and a good place to, to play. So we're playing the final game. We are uh, three points down, maybe four. I'd have to check the records, but we're definitely down and we're definitely to the point where we shouldn't be winning. And it's a uh, halftime. And halftime, you get to come and talk to your team. So I said, you know, we've been trying to be a great team. And we have discussed the fact that great teams come back in games and win games they shouldn't win. You keep telling me you can do this. Wouldn't this be a good time to prove it? Wouldn't this be a good time to show you can come back? And they did. But my point is, it changed their believing to the point of where they really recognized it. And when you work with people, there's not that many moments where people really recognize that what you've been teaching is coming through on the mental side because it just evolves. It just grows. And there's no sort of, there's no so aha moments in there on the thing. You just get better and you don't know why, but you start winning and you don't know why. Because you're running the program. You and I know why, but the athlete doesn't always know. We have our traditional glass of champagne when we win a championship. And as we're having it, one of the girls stopped and said, okay, coach, now we know what you mean about believing. And now we do believe. So you have to admit we believe. I said, yes, you believe. Keep believing. <laughs> it was a, a terrific moment. And after that, we went on and won a lot of games against good teams to come back to win many games after that. Before that hadn't happened. That is probably one of the most important life lessons I've heard on the podcast so far. Of course, it's about winning professionally and in sports and, you know, whatever our goals are. But just thinking about believing in yourself in life, being able to have the confidence for anything that you're taking on, anything, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a sport, whether it's just mustering up the courage to face life when it, when it throws kinks your way and just having a, a belief. I mean, this is almost a little bit on the spiritual side, but I like that this is more grounded in yourself. Yeah. There's a belief in yourself. Well, and, and life is way harder than curling games, but we apply more effort and more mental energies and things and study and research and programs to the curling games. It's a curling game or to a hockey game or whatever it is than people do to life. And life is way harder and actually more important. <laughs> and I, so. I, I'm really interested. I would love to, you know, I'm, all of your five elements are really fascinating. And each one of them, it sounds like, you know, you had them in an order. And at the same time, they inform each other. Yeah. And the, this, the example I brought really shows how if you have a program, you have something to go back to. Like we could go back and say, well, this is why we won. Because we believed in ourselves. Because we did the work. We did great work. They worked really, really hard. And you want to get the results, but, but it all has to come together. What I take away from the story, what I love about this story is the reason that they won, the skill was there, and they would have lost without the believing. Correct. And yeah. th that's the key that people forget. Everybody's really focused on, I've got to develop this skill. I've got to know this 
you know, new software or any, you know, I've got to keep developing my skill sets in order to be better, better, better and outcompete. And in fact, to outcompete is a mental strength game. Mm, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you don't have the skills and you have nothing to believe in, I mean, clearly we were a good, strong team and, uh, and so had enough things to believe in. And when you do the work, you believe more, you know. I think the most important thing is is having the program. It, that might not have been the best program that we had, but we had one. And if you have one, you, you're doing it. You're being consistent. And you have these reference points to go back to. You say, just keep working. Just do the diligence and, and, and believe if you do the diligence, it'll come. Add a little um, mindfulness. Add a little M100. Stop thinking about 14 things and just think about the one thing you need to do now. And in our sport, that's really important. A lot of things we do happen automatically on the subconscious side. We're not consciously thinking about it. I mean, my wife phones me and says, pick up some bread on the way home. Guaranteed, I park the car at home and then I back up and I go out and I go get the bread. Right? Because I'm conditioned. I automatically drive home. And I say, oh yeah, bread. Okay. So I can't stop my flow. <laughs> like I'm not wise enough. I can't, I can't get in there to just stop at the store. I have to drive home first and back out, back to the store, get the bread, and then drive home again. Yes, we are creatures of habit. <laughs> yes, and habits. But you have to make habits work for you. Like good habits, they work pretty darn good. Like if I wouldn't have to get the damn bread, I'd have been home very efficiently <laughs> because I had it, had it nailed, right? But the same in our sport. We practice our skills to the point of where it's automatic. But the thinking side, the conscious side of the brain sometimes wants to get in there and cause some, because it thinks it knows everything, right? And whenever there's stress, whenever there's a problem, the thinking side just fires thoughts. I, I got a hundred thoughts for you here. Just, you know, here's this one, here's this one. That doesn't work. Here's another one. Here's another one. And the subconscious side can't get away from the, you know, the distractions that you're causing yourself. So as an athlete, we have to work on the mental side to know when to stop thinking, just shoot. <laughs> Yeah, and that and that to me is so critical to my life. I in particular, I, I don't really have the right words to describe it. I think I can just say I try too hard. I'm, I try so hard to tap into that rational side of myself. I try so hard to sort of tap into being able to control the situation and see if I can figure out what's going to happen in advance and make sure everything's planned. And and I never let my body just be automatic. Yeah, you have to structure some of that, right? There's there's ways, there's skills. Yeah. You probably I, even know them. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I have a trouble yeah. with letting go. So my mm -hmm. brain always kicks in to make sure that I'm doing all these letting go skills right. Right. Right? Like yeah. at my brain is even like, are you meditating right? Yes. Okay. Checking mm -hmm. in. Did I follow this checklist? Did I do this? Did I? Mm -hmm. Not the point of meditation. <laughs> yeah, no. But most of the time, your, your skill set, most of the time what you're doing, it, it's perfect for what you do. It, it's what makes you successful. It's what makes you work and function and not have to go back and get the bread every time because you're better wired. Yeah. So most of the time. So you need to appreciate yourself and then slip in a couple of places where you can say, I appreciate myself enough that I'm going to relax a bit. And I mean, you do that, you know that. But relax at the right times. Like take those little timeouts that parents give their kids. <laughs> take your own time out at a time when you say, okay, I'm just going to breathe. I'm going to cruise. Yeah. I'm going to take a minute for me. And you know, what pops into my head, I, I'm just thinking this is a little bit unrelated to myself because I've been selfishly talking about myself. 
For people who are in jobs or who are in situations where they can't really create a routine or a habit because work changes daily or, you know, a new project comes in and I'm dealing with this and then something else, some other chaotic, catastrophic event happens. Is there a way to develop habits to deal with the things that you can't make habits around, in your opinion? I'm going to throw you for a loop here. Sounds like a tough question. I I wish you'd ask somebody else that one. (laughs) (laughs) Habits you need to take control of. You need to keep the good ones. You you need to really make the good ones. And everybody has two or three habits that they could do without. Uh, But it takes a long time to replace one of those, to change one of those. I mean, somebody somebody bites their fingernails. It takes a long time to take that away, right? But it, but it can happen. You replace it with certain things. And I think you need to – I don't like to use the word structure because I like to kind of meander through life more than structure. But meandering is a structure too. Meandering is a skill. And I think that everybody should have their own elements. I mean, you don't need five. I just picked five because I had written another book on five. <laughs> like live with two elements or one element thing. But – but go there for yourself. Like find what, what what makes it work for you. I dodged that question pretty well, I think. <laughs> no, I liked that answer. And I yeah. think there's a really important element to figuring out what works for yourself. So as much as you said, I wrote this book, I've got this, you know, setup, and it's a great setup and it totally works. And each individual has to figure out what works for them. Yeah, very well said. As a coach, each one of our players is different. Probably a good idea to have five elements because someone can hit every one of them. <laughs> But everybody is different, and you might you might channel them more towards one. Like they may need more M one hundred work, and and we've had this happen with a, a, you know, in a program where where I've had other coaches come and say we got to get some more M one hundred on on Rudy, or, right? Because we can see where it needs to go, or how do we improve the focus? So you 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 guide in that thing. I think everybody should spend as much time on their mental health as they do on their physical health, assuming that everybody we know goes to the gym and works out. <laughs> But we do that, thinking that'll make us stronger. It'll make us partly stronger, but it won't complete our strength. You can't complete your strength without your mental side. And the real strength becomes in the mental side. It's easy to train a physical body. I've never had a, had an athlete on my teams that wasn't physically capable of performing because they work hard on their physical thing. I, I'm a physical trainer. I hardly ever have to do it because they just do it themselves. And, you know, uh, and we, we have professionals, of course, that do it as well. But an athlete knows that. So the, the, the missing link was always the mental side. What do you think is the reason that so many people are know that they should focus on the physical? They have sort of no problems with that. They're already fully motivated. What do you think holds them back from exploring the mental side on their own? A lack of understanding how to do it. Because if I take if I go into the gym and I and I and I work out, I get immediate reward. My muscles get harder. I walk out of the gym and I'm I'm taller and I'm providing around, around things. Like you get immediate immediate reward. You never know how to measure the mental. It's really difficult. That's why believing is the number one element. You have to believe in the program. You have to believe in your coaches. You have to believe in your support staff. You have to believe that what you're doing is right. I think once you said the last time we talked faith, you have to have that kind of faith that what you're doing is the right thing and that it will help you in the long run. And you need a good coach it doesn't have to be me, but you need a good coach to bounce those things off that can that can then take you to, to the next areas. I mean, if you go on the five elements, that's not enough as you progress. You have to then tie in the feelings, uh, the emotions, the thinking part, the attitude, the various things that come with it, you know, to balance that out. That's, you know, I think psychology 101 or something, right? But it's still real. 
So now the athlete after the five elements says, oh, okay, and now I know. So when I'm feeling this, and uh, that's helping me believe. If I'm thinking this, it's uh, helping me to M100. If I'm not thinking this, it's probably helping you more to M100. But they start to connect it as the program evolves. And it's a, it's a process. It's not a pill, right? So we, and people want a pill. I want to go to the gym. I want to be strong. You can do that quickly. But mental is a process. It's a long process for an athlete. And I, I would say when I go to the gym, I work out like two days in a row and I'm like, why haven't I lost 20 kilos yet? <laughs> so uh, I don't feel that it's a fast process there. But with mental in particular, it's because you don't see the results. There's no measurement of a scale on the ground or you can't measure you know, how much muscle you have on your arm. And with mental, something that I've noticed is you have good days and bad. So some days you're feeling strong, something comes your way, you know, you might slip back into an old pattern for a day or two, and it all of a sudden starts to feel like I've made no progress. So I think it's harder to overcome and easier to be susceptible to thinking it's not working. <laughs> That's right, and to fall into your previous habits. Right. I mean, under, under stress, under pressure, people do what they did before under stress and pressure, whatever that was, and usually it wasn't good. So to change that, to change how you react to pressure and stress in your day, an executive maybe he had, maybe he suffers stress. An athlete talks more about it being pressure, but it's really the same connection, I think. So how you react to it, you get to decide. But usually we react the way we did before because it's so ingrained and it's habitual. Do you have any tips on to how to break that pattern through emotional work or, you know, you had talked about recognizing? Well, yeah. I mean, eventually, if you go through the process of, of we went through four parts, like the, the elements, which we've covered to death now. And, and then the, the second part of connecting the feelings and the thinking to it, how it relates. For us to get to improve our performance levels, we had to really say, really, really understand that you have to improve your self-image which connects right back to believing. <laughs> but if your, your self-image improves, that, then your performance improves because you, you allow yourself to go to the next level. When you have some success in performance, your self-image improves. And this, this then is what we try to take us from a good team to a great team and to take away the inhibitors. There's always a block of the self-image. If I go back to the same final game that we won over the Canadian team, the Canadian team was a really good, strong team, but they were content. We had beat them in the round robin, so they were surprised that they were beating us at that moment, and that's what gave us that little bit of a break to come back. But to go to the mental side, their self-image didn't see them beating us, and when they were, they should have stomped us. They should have never let us back. But because they were a little surprised, it was, we could get that edge and we could shift the pressure. When you're down three or four, there really isn't any pressure on you because you're losing. There's pressure really on the other team because they're winning. They're supposed to win now. Now they have to win. It's a different pressure. And once we creep back, suddenly they had one and now they're not. And it just changes the whole dynamic and they start to make mistakes and we start to make great shots and the whole believing thing just turns around. So that happens to a lot of top teams. If you see teams that go the first time they go to a final, a big final, they usually don't win. Sometimes they do, but they usually don't because of the self-image. Self-image doesn't see themselves there yet. Once they break through, then they might win one or two more championships. So that became a part of that third part of the element. I'm going to take you jump right over to four, though, because that is what the thing that really, now that you've got all this stuff on in your program in in your in your kind of wheelhouse of how you're working with your team or your corporation or your the structure 
you have to understand life. And life is emotions. And emotions are feelings. So now you're back to feeling and thinking. But emotions, I believe, can be managed more than we allow ourselves to. We, I don't think, are often aware of ourselves, and which gets me to the thing we talked about last time, where I stopped asking people how they feel, because I asked my athletes, how do you feel? Feel good, coach? I get the same answer all the time. It's a half lie, because they maybe do feel good, maybe they don't, they kind of, you know, but the answer is always the same. So we're just wasting space and words and air. I say to my athletes now, and I try to say to myself on a daily basis, how do you want to feel? Like when I get up in the morning, how do I want to feel today? Very rarely do I say, I want to feel tired. I want to feel bored. I want to feel like I'm not well. You know, Rarely do you select that for yourself. But three or four hours later in the day, that's how you feel because you didn't check in. Yeah, you didn't set an intention to, right. to not be yeah. cranky. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to hang around here for a while and see how lousy I can feel today. You know, and you can be more aware of yourself. The the last part of my program is, and I'm still working on this. This is really just a, I'm just scratching on this and working away at it. And I'm, I appreciate the help people like you give me on this all the time. But it, in a curling game or in a sport of any kind, but in a curling game, when you're going along and something triggers you, uh, that's, that's a bit of annoyance. You can function with an emotion of annoyance, but if you let it go too far, it becomes anger. You can maybe make a few shots and still have a little success with anger, but if it goes to rage, you're, it's over. Your team's losing. You're going to miss shots. You're going to do the wrong things. You're not going to know where you are at any time, let alone the right time, and it's all going down. If you can catch that at annoyance and say, whoa, let's, uh, let's shift this emotion a little bit. If you can catch it there, you're fine. You're, not, you're going to keep performing. You can replace the annoyance with a little bit of uh, happiness. You know, you can shift somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a book called Emotional Agility that talks a bit about this. And they talk about how to not get stuck in your emotions. And exactly that, when you catch it before it's escalated. Mm-hmm. So when you're just at the annoyance phase, even saying a sentence like, I am feeling annoyed versus I am annoyed can give you enough Good distance yeah. to break that cycle. You told me about that book last time, and I already read the first little bit of it. Oh, great. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. And it's, it would be helpful for me to, to develop the rest of this. Yeah. And when you have that distance is where you create the opportunity for choice. Mm. And so when you said, okay, you know, when you're at rage, forget it. There's no real yeah. opportunity for choice there at the moment. <laughs> That's, That's a right. whole system takeover. That's right. Yeah. But when you're at annoyance, if you catch it there, if you notice it there, like you said, if you bring awareness there, and then you can also bring a distance to it and cut it and say, I am feeling annoyed. Okay, I don't want to feel annoyed. How do I want to feel? Right. And now you're deciding how you want to feel. And that's what has to come into that phrase. I mean, in some sports, playing with anger is good. It's successful. Like playing with anger, but not rage, right? So you know what you need in your sport, in your point to play. Everybody says, oh, be happy, you know, enjoy the game, and that's a good thing. But if happiness goes to the point of ecstasy, you can't perform well either because now you're, you're, you're too happy. You're, you're goofy. Yeah, and there's <laughs> you know, no, fo- and there's no and, you know, focus is gone. Exactly, right. So even what we think are good emotions to take with you, you've got to watch out you don't go too far down that road. Start, you know, chit-chatting and happy with the crowd, and which I've seen athletes, and they lose focus, and they can't, don't perform well. I call it the emotional stacks. <laughs> Because they kind of stack on each other and you've got to sort them out into the stack, get your stacks the way you want them to be that fits your sport, that fits your emotions and yourself. 
Yeah. And there's one thing that I could recommend to people. I don't know if you find this as well. People don't have an emotional vocabulary. So how are you feeling? Sad, angry, bad. When they have to say something, they don't, they don't have the nuanced language to say, I'm feeling irritated. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm not scared. I'm startled. I'm disappointed, not just angry. There's a nuance to emotions that most people can't get to. And without being able to put words to what they're feeling, like uh, more articulate words to what they're feeling, mm-hmm. it's hard to break that cycle and break that stack. That's yeah, I, I agree. I, this is all new to me because I've just started doing this in the last in the last two years. Kind of the la- I hope the last part of my program because it really is so important. But I think you're right on the language, and people don't know what the connection is. Like, how do I really feel? Uh, and I think that again, I know how I want to feel. Go there, get away from how you're actually feeling. It is my only way of thinking of that right now. One thing that I've come to realize is. A lot of times your brain can't articulate your emotions or you can't, it's quite, it's quite hard to do it verbally. And this sounds a little floofy, but I think you'll appreciate this. I close my eyes and I take a breath and I scan my body and I'm like, okay, where am I feeling this in my body? Is it my shoulders that are really tense? Or I notice like anxiety um, sits in my heart. My heartbeat goes really fast. And it's much easier for me to feel my emotions and say, is there a nervousness? Like, are my hands twitching? Do my legs want to run? Like, what's going on? But through the body. Yeah, I agree. Some sports psychologists that I've had the opportunity and pleasure to work with have done a lot of keen exercises on that kind of thing. It starts with the breathing and then start to feel through the body and the tension. Dr. Saul Miller, for example, is excellent at that. He's done worked with some of my teams over time with it. it. It's like a connection. You connect yourself. And I think that's a good relaxation, good healing process as long as your emotions aren't to a point where, you know, your body, you, you, you can't get in there. Yeah. And what I'm talking about when I scan my body is not just to let it go, but to look for information because how your brain works is that your body, your reptilian brain sort of picks up information first because it does that first threat detection. So your body knows something about your reaction that your rational brain sometimes doesn't know. Yeah. Makes sense to me. And, and you're stopping that thinking guy. <laughs> You're kind of getting him to go go sleep, go away a little bit, yeah, and let the feeling guy take more control. Yeah, and cut the middleman, right? Like you mm-hmm. don't always need the words. Mm-hmm. You can scan the body and talk to your right. body and figure yeah. out what's yeah. there. But I think you make an interesting point on people don't know the language of emotion. I think that's really good. I, I think smarter people than us will, will help us on that as time goes on because I think it's still a new field of, of working on that area. It seems to me the emotional intelligence and emotional agility. So. Yeah, there are some great yeah. people out there. I'll, I'll put mm-hmm. the resources in the show notes as well. I oh, think good, Lisa yeah. Barrett Feldman is sort of the premier, one of the premier thought leaders in emotional stuff. And she's got great, you know, Bible-like books on our emotions. But then it mm-hmm. almost gets a little complicated. We need someone who can take all of the really complex information that's out there with professors and distill it down to a, a program yeah. <laughs> and say, what, what yeah. do I do with all that information? Right, yeah. So we can still steal stuff and then make it workable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is all as a coach for a sport coach for sure. That's trying to do, or even I think corporate coach. Yeah, I wouldn't say steal it. it I would say no. you know enhance it. Well, you know my my absolute favorite quote that I think about all the time is the every single time you come up with a brilliant brand new idea, 
go back and look at the ancient Greeks and see which one of them had the idea first. Correct. Good point. Because there, point. Yeah. there's no such thing as a new idea, right? That's right. Yes. But it is we about... We need to find them and make them work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Exactly. It's about connecting new dots, building on what already happens, and then finding new ways. It's also different people hear a message in different ways. So some people will be moved by a compelling story. Some people want facts. Some people, you know, want to connect in person. There are lots of different ways that a message can connect to an individual. So just as we said, every person is individual. Mm -hmm. They need an individual way of receiving the message. So if some person does it this way and you do the same thing, but with your twist, you'll reach different people. That's right. that's, That's very true. That, that goes really to the sport. Like we have four athletes or, and, and, and an additional, so four or five people always in our groups. So in time, you can really get, start to figure them all out and then make the applications to what, you know, tailor the message a little bit to, to here and there when they come in. That may be harder in a corporate environment where there's more people involved and maybe more, more masking. Like even our athletes say they, they like to tell you what they think the coach wants to hear, right? Yes. I think the big yes to all of the above. The new thing now is for managers to be able to be flexible to the needs of every individual as much as possible. So if you have five employees, you would do exactly what you said with your team. You would figure out what are the preferences of each of the people and tailor the message a bit. So each one of them, you know, it's no longer the boss says so, and it must be true. But it's rather, you know, the boss's job to engage the people, to make it true for them. Um, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? I think it, in the sporting world, the, the key to, is always the pressure and how you manage pressure. So, you know, we have, we have a program, but the program doesn't take pressure out. An athlete has to perform under pressure if he wants to be top, if he wants to win world championships, Olympic medals. So you have to be training that athlete all the time. And I think in every walk of life, not just athlete, you shouldn't be running away from pressure. So I developed this talk to my athletes to just say, you have to make pressure your friend. And if you make him your friend, he's with you all the time anyway. So he's not going away. So you can't run away from him. So you have to make him your friend. Not your enemy. If pressure is your enemy, uh, you're going to fight him. You're going to fight yourself. You're going to not have success. And I used to make the joke, and I, I used to think that actually when I played, I used to think of pressure being Mr. Pressure, like a little parrot on my shoulder, on my left shoulder, because I throw it the right hand. And I would say, come on with me. And I've used this as my athletes in, in the future, say, make him your friend. And they, they usually love that kind of thing. But, you know, you'd be sitting in the hack to make a great shot. And I would sometimes even just look over at my shoulder and say, okay, Mr. Pressure, watch this shot. This is going to be a great one. Just sit right there. You know, it, it works because it, it takes the stress away. You just react to it. Yeah, and, and it gives you an opportunity. It sounds like if you have a parrot on your shoulder, it gives you the opportunity to, to consciously speak to the voice. Whereas if it's just in your head and you think it's you – then you think it must be some kind of truth that you know, but you've taken it outside of your brain and you've said, no, it's just this parrot on my shoulder and I can talk to it and tell it, yeah. no, <laughs> I'm not going to listen to it. Right. And it brings you to the point where the athlete wants the pressure. The top athlete, he needs the pressure to perform. When I would play in really tense games, when you sit in the hack, if you know the action of the sport, I would sit there and my focus, concentration, go through my routine and my right knee would shake just a little bit. And when it was shaking, I, I knew that was pressure. I'd calm it down and play. And I realized when I got to the end of my career that I'd sit in the hack and I'd look at my knee, wouldn't shake. 
And it just told me, I don't care enough anymore. Now's the time to stop playing because you want the pressure. If I'm not playing with the pressure, I'd, I'd smack my knee a couple of times, and, but he's just saying, oh, you know, do what you want. <laughs> and, you know, it's the same as a parrot, like those keys that, that they connect you. And you, you want pressure. You, you go there, the top athletes, they relish in it. They got three parrots and a whole flock of geese. I mean, they just doesn't matter. They're going to they're gonna perform. They're going to make that shot. Nothing stops you when you're in that zone, right? And our program has to get the people there. It has to make it okay to feel pressure. If you don't feel pressure, what are you here for? You know, in the in the environment, in the sporting world, but I think in every world you're in, it has to be okay to have an ego because that's the self-image side uh, we talked about with the performance. And in, in our sport, in curling, we have four people on the ice. I need four strong egos because every one of them has to really believe in their position and their job and what they do. And we started to develop that to say it's okay to be ego. You have to have the four strong egos. However, we need to turn it into a we go. It, it can't be the ego. Your, your, your ego can't be bigger than the we go. And I, you know, years ago, it was Vince Lombardi and football coach from when I was just a child used to have those things like it has to be a we. The we has to be bigger than the me was his statement. And we just took that to we go. And it's it's a nice term because, uh, you know, my ego can't win without these people. You can't win out. You can't be successful without the help you get. You have to make the people around you better. And if your ego gets too strong, it's just about you. You don't make the other people around you better. You, you, you turn them off. So getting that balance on a team, probably a corporate team as well, is I think important. And they, the, the term of, you know, build your ego, build your ego, and then make a we go <laughs> out of it. It reminds yeah. me of improv. Basically, mm. when you're performing, you know, you, you, someone from the audience says, you know, here's this scenario. And then the people up on the stage just have to make a funny scene about the scenario. So they don't, they can't plan it in advance. You don't even necessarily know who your partner is going to be. You don't really have any contacts and you just have to wing it. And one of the rules, I, I practiced improv yeah. with a friend of mine to, to get better at coaching and speaking. And one of the rules of improv is you have to make the other person look good. Wow. That's, that's okay, your yeah. job. That, good. Yeah. That's a good skill. Boy, I would, it would kind of scare me, but I guess if you do that more, you, you develop the skills to, to do it. Yeah. yeah. It, it takes yeah. a lot of skills to be great at improv, but yeah, you say yes and you move the story forward. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you don't say no and shut it down and you make the other person look good yeah. because you want it to be a friendly environment for both of you and you trust that they're going to help you to look good. So it's a partnership yeah. building. That describes a curling team because there's four people and uh, those they can split off into two two versus two pretty easily. That's more manageable than when they split off to three versus one. That's very difficult because then you, you don't get much wego going in there. Uh, and you always have to be aware of what's happening to your athletes and what state they're at, not I mean level, state of, uh, state of awareness, state of emotional. Because if one person's struggling and the other three trying to help them, it's like Dr. Saul says in his things, you know, you have to be like you're on the, on the airplane. And first you take your own oxygen before you try to help somebody else. You know, same thing in the team. Sometimes we get teams where they're trying to do too much to save this poor person because they're struggling in the game. And then they can't do their own job and everything falls awfully apart. Any advice or tips on how to find that balance? Any like quick one piece of advice or a first step? You have to get back to trusting yourself and you have to find what what made you believe before or you have to find find that emotional awareness that we talked about before that you that you can check yourself. 
you have to find the focus point. Yeah. It, it's tough when your athletes are struggling and there's not much you can do. There's no, you know, life raft you can throw in there. You just have to bear it out and then go back in the analysis, go back and uh, back to the basics, try to find out how we got so off, off key and then get into another game as fast as you can. I love for sports. What's great about sports is you keep stats, you have, you know, footage mm-hmm. of the game. You can pretty easily identify patterns. So right. you can say when this happens, it seems like this person does this. We don't really have such clear yeah. data for life. That's true. But it yeah. would be so wonderful because patterns is a part of the habits. When this happens, yeah. then I react like this. We we all have these sort of hidden patterns that we are not conscious about. And if we could bring them to consciousness, it would be, it's much easier once we do it to make a change and say, oh, that's, I don't want that pattern. That's a terrible pattern. (laughs) Right. But the the reaction is a thing because everything in life is just how you react to it, like how much you let in and how much you block out. And that's a tough skill to, to manage. But I think if you get some awareness of, I don't have to react this way, I can pause. I don't have to react the second something happens. You can breathe. I mean, all coaches and psychologists teach you how to breathe, but we forget how to breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, not overreacting, not impulse reacting, not reacting out of out of habit. Take a mm-hmm. breath. Take a breath. Give space for choice. Don't react. Find the next action. Different way of doing it. Different way of saying it. We do that. We we, we talk about that a lot in our when we're having our coaching meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Roger, for joining me today and Level Up Your Leadership and for all of this great advice. Hi, everyone. It's Lisa. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Roger and I have decided to partner together to create a high-performing team's leadership development training program that's mostly for leadership and executive teams, but you know, maybe could also be for your immediate management team. Who doesn't want to get out there on the ice and try out curling with Roger as their coach? And the learning that we're going to create in this program is combining the mental strength exercises that Roger uses with his Olympic athletes and also best practices for team cohesion and development that we use in major corporations across the globe. So the program can be customized to meet your team's individual needs. Maybe it's, you know, trouble with conflict and you want to learn how to leverage conflict. Maybe you want more effective communication strategies and styles. Or, you know, a lot of people are working on innovation programs and looking to create team cohesion, psychological safety that fosters that innovation. So if you're interested in learning more about the program or you want to just get more details or talk about how it might be a great fit for your team, reach out to me at lisa at lisakristen.com. That's Lisa Kristen, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N, lisa at lisakristen.com. And I'd love to chat with you and see if we can help you or work together to get your team performing at its best. Thanks for listening to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and the topics we've discussed, check out the show notes on www.lisakristen.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. While you're there, it'd be great if you could rate and review the show. And if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you shared the word on social media. As always, thanks again for listening. Thank you.